My father showed me how to stand. Put your left foot a touch further forward and bend your legs slightly. He corrected my posture by taking hold of my shoulders from behind and adjusting my torso so I was front on. As a border guard in the Iraqi army, he knew how to handle rifles. He placed the gun, an AK-47, in my hands. The Kalashnikov wasn't as heavy as I'd anticipated. Put your right hand at the back by the trigger, he said. Like that. Now with your left hand, you can align the barrel at the front. Aim at the tree trunk over there. I got one of the mulberry trees in our garden in my sights. And fire. I tentatively fingered the trigger. Nothing happened. Go on, he said. Don't be afraid, Ferida. I pulled the metal lever gently until finally it clicked quietly. From behind me, Dad laughed. Just like that, he said. Well done. I looked at him quizzically. I haven't taken off the safety catch, but we'll change that right away. This is how you do it. He showed me how to release the safety catch on the right-hand side of the receiver. Are you ready? Of course, I said, focused. Careful now. Okay. Are you aiming right? I nodded. Go on, then. A loud report echoed through our garden, and the force of the Kalashnikov had me staggering. Bravo, Dad said, grinning beneath his dark moustache. The two of us walked over to the tree to examine the results of my first shooting attempt, and in the event, a small piece of metal was lodged at the very right-hand edge of the trunk. The empty cartridge lay in the dust about a metre away. You've got talent, my father said. With a little practice, you'll be better than your mother. Do you think so? I asked excitedly. He stroked my head with affection. Yes. You've just got to do it a few times. Then it'll be a piece of cake. I'll put up a target for you in the garden. You'll see. Over time, you'll lose that fear of the bang and you'll be better at offsetting the kick. I nodded eagerly. I was terribly proud that my father was teaching me, at the age of 15, how to handle a Kalashnikov. He'd already shown my mother and my brother Dylan, who was a couple of years older than me, how to do it years ago. Although not my brother Sirhad, who was two years younger. It was a sure sign that he thought I was grown up enough to defend our house and property, should it ever come to that. There were three rifles in a box in my parents' bedroom, one was Dad's army service rifle, the others he'd picked up at the bazaar. Women need to know how to use a weapon too, he said. When I've got enough money, I'll buy another AK-47 so that there's one for each of us in an emergency. Dad didn't specify what this emergency might be, and I didn't have the imagination to picture it. Back then it didn't cross my mind that my father's circumspection might be linked to the fact that we were Yazidis and not Muslims. I was just thinking of burglars who might try to steal our valuables. I was just 15 years old, and the catastrophe awaiting us in the future was completely beyond my imagination. I'm joined in the studio by Andrea Hoffman, who is the co-writer of The Girl Who Beat Isis. Um, Andrea, thank you so much for, for coming in and talking to us. Thanks for having me here. <laughs> the first question I wanted to ask you actually was was how you actually came to meet Farida and, and hear her story. How did that happen? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm working as a journalist and uh, I, I went to a refugee camp in, in northern Iraq. 
close to Dohuk. And uh, I was talking to the people there and I also met this social worker working for the German Wadi organization. They um, originally they they cared for um, they were fighting against the circumstancing of, of girls and now they are taking uh, care of the girls that uh, got taken away by ISIS. And um, the, the, the lady in charge, she introduced me to, to Farida. She was she was taking care of her. So that's that's how I ran into her little house there. She at that time her mother wasn't back, so she was living with her uncle, and uh, this woman introduced me to her, and that's how we got to know each other. And uh, I was very impressed by Farida when I met her the first time. I was astonished because you know I I, I knew she had been cat- captured, and I I was she uh, she was so full of life and so mm. strong that I was really impressed. Mm. So then she she sort of, well, you got the opportunity to ask her more about, you know, what had happened to her. And at what point did you, did you realize that this might be something that you would turn into a book? I mean, presumably you hear a lot of stories mm. as a journalist. Yeah, exactly. I, I did, I did talk to a lot of girls actually and, and women in the camp and I did hear many stories, but it was actually Farida's character. You <laughs> might notice that by reading the book, she has a very, very strong character. She, mm. uh, she has so much strength inside her. So that was... And then, of course, she was willing to tell the story. That was also something uh, unnormal, you know. She wasn't shy at least in the beginning, of course, when we got deeper into matters, that mm. uh, it was getting a little bit more difficult. But um, it was really her way of being that got me hooked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then you, 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 know, you must have conducted a series of interviews with her to, yeah. to, to find out what had happened to her. Well, uh, as I said, when I, when I met her the first time, right. I was on an assignment, so I didn't have a lot of time. I just you know interviewed her like I interviewed many others. And then I went back to Germany and, um, you know, but I had her cell phone number and I was thinking of her and I thought, wow, this um, Farida was quite something mm. and I, I wish I could tell the whole story, you know. And that's when I decided to go back and and ask her if she would be interested in, in this project and uh, she was. So that's when we really started uh getting into that now what i'm fascinated by as well is the the idea of co-writing a book with somebody particularly somebody in you know in the situation that farida was in how do you go about that i mean how do you actually work together to to tell that story you you interview a lot you know actually farida i have hours and hours and hours of recordings of what she told me Mm. about her Life and you, you, you sort of relive the whole thing with her. I was asking her a lot of details. How was this? How was that? And how how does how did this man look like? How was the setting? How, can you describe the feeling in this room to me? What did you do the whole time? What did you eat? You know, and every little detail. So it's it's quite tiring process for yeah. both sides yeah, and yeah. Uh, sometimes she would get impatient with me you know that's not important yes it is, it is. every <laughs> little detail is important 
So yeah, we we had to go through it, um, and of course, as you know, there are ugly scenes in the book. So that was that was quite hard for Farida as well, and we had to interrupt sometimes, and uh, she had to recover and and go for a walk and have to go with the flow and and, yeah. and be guided by your own feelings. Actually, I think. We also shared a lot of feelings in in this process. Of course, it's it's something else to have lived all the, these horrible things. But um, she she was not the only one crying in the interview. You yeah. know, when when you hear this, it's wow. And uh, also during the writing process afterwards, it's the same thing. You know, when when you relive all these horrible things, it gets to you and. Uh, I was dreaming about it and everything. So. I was going to ask actually because of course, for you to hear every aspect of the story from her, but then of course presumably to relive it again as you as you commit it to the page, was it was it difficult? I mean that must be very difficult to it, actually it go was, through it. it. It was it was quite difficult. Yeah, it was intense, and um, yeah, I, I it's it's hard, you know, the the switching to to. Have your a normal life in mm. in in Berlin in Germany. Uh, the sun is shining and and everybody is you know going out for the drink <laughs> for a drink at night, and and happy and and then you switch to this other world and you are with those six girls in a closed room with no light, and uh, you relive this and then you go out again and you. <laughs> Uh, try to be a normal human being with your friends mm. or uh, with your partner. Uh, that was quite challenging. Yeah. And I think because the book, it, because it's told in Farida's voice and told so brilliantly her voice, as you say, she's got such a strong character that really comes off the page. And the way that it's told means that you really feel like you are there with her, experiencing everything that she experiences. Um, it, and that... That's very powerful. But as you said, that thing of writing that and then going to your normal life, is that part of the reason why you felt compelled to write this book? Because there is such a huge difference between no. most of you know the, the lives that many Westerners lead and what might be going on in another country. Which no, would... Actually, the, the reason I wanted to write this book was be, when, when I first heard the first pieces of her story, only the first pieces, the, you know, the general topic the, the what happened to her you know mm. even that tiny bit made me think wow what isis did to those girls and also to the men of course you mm. know because just in her village 500 men including her brother and her father were killed mm. you know just lined up and killed you know those uh, crimes are so tremendous they have to be told. Mm. Um, I, I'm German, and in in Germany we have a big history. You know, uh, we we uh, we learn a lot uh, as students uh, about the Holocaust, and um, they always tell us, you know, this was so horrible. You know, it it should never happen again. You know, it's it's not comparable to anything in history. But when I went to this refugee camp in Iraq and I 
met all those people, I thought, wow, what happened here is 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 very much comparable. Mm. You know, genocide, slavery, sex, slavery. I mean, it's, it's another form of a concentration camp. Yeah. And I that that was really my my uh, motivation. I thought. They cannot uh, get away with it. This has to be told. It has to be written down. It sh shall not be forgotten. Mm. It, and it should be heard by the by the world. Mm. We have to care about what's happening there. As you say, sort of, uh, what you're doing is is capturing testimony to an event. You know. Yeah, and capturing history. If you look at it from from a. a um, from a point in the future. Mm. So that people don't forget or, or make sure that people do know that these things have happened because they could yes. very easily be buried, couldn't they? You yes, know. yes, yes, yes. Because, you know, there are, there are peasants, you know, they, they live in villages. They are not very powerful people in terms of economy or politics or anything. And, um, but uh, they... It should be remembered. Everything should be written down, and and what they, uh, everything she told me, and and also I I talked to her brother and her, her mother. It's very important. Uh, As you said, with their community, the Yazidi community is a sort of suffered a terrible oppression, and in fact, right at the beginning of the book, she's being told by her her grandfather about why the Muslims look at them in a particular way or mm -hmm. treat them in a particular mm -hmm. way because of this sort of history of, mm -hmm. of oppression. Yeah. Um, I, I will admit that, of course, totally news to me. I'd not heard of this community, mm -hmm. didn't realise about this different branch of religion. Um, but it, that's an important precursor, I think, isn't it, for the, to realise about Frida's story is that this is a group of people who have always been sidelined, living in particular parts of the country and looked down upon by the vast majority of people they're surrounded by because yeah. of this it's, religious difference. It's a history of misunderstandings, yeah. actually, because uh, this is an ancient religion. It has a, a relationship with the old uh, Zoroastrian, and it changed a lot over history. And, and uh, right now it's, it's a wild mix yeah. <laughs> of <laughs> different influences. And I have to admit, before... Getting into this, I didn't know a whole lot about it uh, either. Um, but um, in recent years and recent centuries, they were a minority. Mm. And yes, they had a, a very hard time with uh, their Muslim neighbors because of this misunderstanding that the Muslim claim that they are worshipping the devil. Mm -hmm. So that's their their problem with them, and that's the the reason that's the justification ISIS is is giving for slaughtering them and for enslaving them. And this uh, hasn't happened recently. It just happened at a very very uh, large and alarming scale recently. But it had happened before. They were attacked before, and mm. there were massacres before in the in the recent um, centuries. And one of the crucial things is that uh, that faith is incredibly important to them as a group so that mm -hmm. when they are asked by ISIS to, to renounce it, to, to become Muslims, mm -hmm. 
which you, for many people you would seem you know a very simple choice because mm. without knowing necessarily that if you say no it's going to lead to your death mm. or, or imprisonment but mm. it might seem the easiest thing to do to just sort of go along with yeah. it but they none of them do absolutely none of them the the men the women yeah. the children they all will stick fast to their faith that is quite amazing and quite impressive and yeah for us it's hard to understand i guess because we have not such a a strong relationship to uh, to religion anymore yeah. maybe our ancestors would have the ha uh, ha would have had the same scruples to uh, deny their fate because they would have feared uh, for a punishment in heaven or something yeah. we don't have that anymore but uh, for them it's just the most valuable thing you know their religion and that's the last thing they would do mm. Mm. In denying that yeah. and on the other hand of course having that str uh, strong faith it gives them strength in a psychological sense to survive all that um, misery they're going through Yeah, because they do believe that there is something else and then that they will be rewarded for, for, for keeping their faith. Yeah, by, by remaining true yeah, to it. Yeah. Is that, do you think that that helps feed into Farida's strength? Because of everything that she goes through through the book requires so much strength yeah. to remain, yeah, I, or to I, keep yourself I, alive. I admire her so much, really. Yeah. After, uh, after having written the book, I, I admire her even more because it's, it's just, you know, super human to, to survive all that and then s still be that strong character because she's, she, of course she's traumatized. She's very much traumatized, but she's not uh, broken, you know, she's no. standing. In fact, she sort of says that um, part of her realization in captivity is that it is the expression of her character. It is her fighting spirit, yeah. her ability to say no that actually she really frustrates gave them, them. Yeah, a hard time. Yeah. <laughs> but do you think that's part of why she comes out the other side with that character intact? Because she was she was expressing that character rather than keeping it hidden in captivity. She was she was being it's remaining hard true to, to herself. It's it's hard to tell because if you talk about other girls who chose another way, for example, giving in, you know, mm. I, I heard of, of, of uh, girls who, who just chose to marry uh, the, the guys and not fight them or, or just chose to be become a Muslim or pretend to become a Muslim. Yeah. I would never judge them and I wouldn't be able to tell if they suffered more afterwards. Mm. Uh But for Farida, I'm not sure if she herself realized what she did. Mm. It's so impressive. But maybe, maybe after a while, looking back at it and maybe reading the book yeah. again, she will. <laughs> well, maybe it takes a bit of time, doesn't it, to, yeah. to realize actually what you've done and yeah, what yeah, you've yeah. achieved. Uh, She's too close to it, I suppose, now to yes, realize. Yeah. Or, or to realize that what she has done was different to what other people might have done yeah, in the situation. Yeah, she is proud, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. We will see. <laughs> <laughs> and just, I was interested in what you were saying there about this—the way that these stories are told afterwards, the the importance of writing them down, and a lot of the work that you have done has been to tell the stories of women in particular. Mm -hmm. And I wondered whether. 
that was a conscious decision or is it often because in situations like this it is the men and the boys who are taken away and shot and it is the women who have the story to tell because they are the ones that survive or is it or as i say is it because you are particularly interested in the the women's stories mm. I think it's a mixture of everything. Of course, being a woman, I'm always, uh, I guess I'm a little bit closer to the mm. what women have to say and what uh, women have to suffer. Also, I, I feel that the stories of women are, have not been told as often as the, the stories of men. For example, for Farida, I was writing about an, an, an Afghan pilot. You know, I guess you heard about a lot of male pilots, but what about the women pilots? Yeah, yeah, you absolutely. know, that's quite a different story. Yeah. And for me, also, it was it was more interesting. And um, I guess I can I can simply more connect to the to the women's stories. Yeah. Just finally, I wanted to ask, looking because you have told many stories, um, and just sort of stepping back from them and looking at the world in which we live today mm. with the various migrant crises going on and the influx of people coming into Europe to seek safety from oppressive regimes wherever they might be how does that make you feel i mean as a person but as a journalist and what are your hopes for the future for those people and the areas that they've come from having been so embedded speaking to these people what hope is there for a sort of any kind of resolution to that crisis in the future Oh, re resolution to the micro migrant crisis. That's that's a hard one. Well, I, I I think the solution has to be in in the in the Middle East. Mm. You know, not not in Europe. Or, of course, we have to deal with the people who have come and uh, have to try to integrate them and everything. But in general, generally speaking, I think uh, the solution has to be uh, on the ground in 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 Syria, in Iraq, in in Afghanistan, wherever, um, because the people belong there and um solution is not for everybody to leave you know mm. we have to um those those areas have to be peaceful again i think that for for many people living within europe uh and seeing people coming coming into europe it, it's often not clear to people what the justification is or what the reasons are for people coming and a book like yours makes painfully clear who is running what they're running from why why they are running because it isn't simply a question of people doing it for any kind of necessarily for any kind of game but because mm. they fear for their lives mm. genuinely yeah. um and that in fact members of their family as in Frida's case have already been killed mm. um she's now in germany as yeah, you said right. starting a a new life hopefully mm -hmm. um with her yeah, family yeah she's learning german right now she's <laughs> she's She's very smart. She's pro <laughs> uh, making great, great pro uh, progress and uh, she still sticks to her plan to become a math teacher. So yes. I hope she will, she will succeed. And well, I think in, in Farida's case, it's really, really difficult to think about going back because, you know, as, as I write in the book, um, they're surrounded by Muslims and that will stay that way. So even if they can go back to their to their place to Portugal it's it's going to be it's going to be very hard but i i think those communities could need math teachers female yeah. math teachers like farida that's yeah. what i'm saying i think the solution lies there even if if i don't see any easy solution anytime soon
in her well, case. No, I, I agree. And it's sort of it's fascinating to hear about what's gone into writing the book, Andrea. So thank <laughs> you for telling us more. But I think most importantly, as you say, it's it's a, an important story to have yeah. to have documented so that people understand what's happened to not just that not to Frida as an individual, but to that community as as a whole. Thank you so much for coming in to talk to us. Thank you. <laughs> Pleasure. <laughs>